hello. Welcome to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm Matthew Schneeman, your host today. All of our other hosts are scattered throughout the city, some not even in the city, and we Frankensteined another show for you today. One thing that we uh, get to uh, debut is this incredible remix I did of the theme song. Very intense. Particularly this part. Check out this ramp up. Yeah, very climbing. Very intense. Okay, Emily Scott, local story first. I'll let her take it from here. Emily Scott here, reporting for Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn from the relative safety of my bedroom nook. Uh, right now for me, it is Friday, April 24th, 2020, although you will be hearing this air on Sunday, April 26th. Uh, so I have a local New York City story for you now, and it comes from an article from the news outlet The City titled, uh, New Exceptions in Construction Shutdown Keep Thousands of N- uh, uh, NYC Sites Open uh, by Rosa Goldenson. Uh, personally, I come from background of architecture and real estate, so I'm kind of drawn to these stories. I find, I find them really interesting, um, often problematic, and maybe that makes them more interesting. Um, and I guess I should also mention, as a full disclosure or something, I'm currently a licensed real estate agent and a member of Rebney, um, since I pay a little dues to them. Um, but anyway, so the article from April 22nd, uh, reports that there are currently about 4,900 construction job sites permitted to work, i.e. they are considered, quote, essential by the government. And if you compare that number to what was previously allowed at the beginning of April, only around 800 sites, you might ask yourself, huh? And what could have changed in less than a month that allowed for a six-fold increase in construction jobs considered essential? Uh, so let's back up a little bit to the end of March when all construction was still considered essential at a time when a large number of other jobs and businesses were being told to work from home or shut down. An article from March 27th, also by Rosa Goldenson, reported that Governor Cuomo declared a freeze on most New York construction sites in response to the pandemic and outcry from construction workers. The article stated that, quote, Cuomo's shift followed a rush of protests from construction workers and their family members. Significant numbers had been refusing to show up for work, sources said. Word traveled on Facebook among workers about positive cases on job sites and an electrician's death. Stephen Yosef, 57, who had been working on Google's offices at 111 8th Avenue, died from the coronavirus, his daughter said. We understand the need for essential electrical work, but there are many jobs that aren't, his three daughters said in a statement. End quote. And that's all from the, the article from the city. Um, The article also reported, uh, quote, on Friday, the governor will decree most residential and commercial building temporarily off limits, uh, according to a spokesperson for Cuomo's office. Infrastructure and transportation projects will be allowed to continue, as well as emergency repairs, hospital building and work on affordable housing, end quote. Uh, now let's flashback, flashback to the present when the number of, quote, essential construction jobs are for some reason ballooning. Uh, the city news outlet reports that among those projects are, quote, hotels in Manhattan and Brooklyn, a new Queens target, and as the Columbia Spectator first reported, the future home of Columbia University's business school. 
The green-lighted projects also include renovation work on rental buildings under an exception for a, quote, sole worker, uh, raising concerns for tenants, end quote. Uh, so what's going on here? Well, the state issued a revision on its construction guidelines, now allowing construction to continue on any kind of business that is also allowed by the state to keep in-person operations going under coronavirus-based regulations. And that includes, and that quote includes hotels, restaurants, convenience stores, banks, appliance stores, and storage facilities, among other businesses. Uh, end quote. And that's all from the city. Um, and for some reason, the list also includes public schools, even though they are not currently operating in person. So that's just personally one I don't really understand. Um, another quote from the article, uh, one worker on a Manhattan hotel project fumed, saying his bosses were treating the pandemic like a joke. Um, he said to make the hotel essential, you may as well open every job because the hotel is far from essential. He said that hotel is deemed essential while we are deemed expendable, end quote. Um, so the issue of letting work continue gets complicated for workers whose immigration status doesn't entitle them to unemployment money. But at the end of the day, for projects that aren't truly, truly essential, like infrastructure projects or healthcare projects, etc., there's probably someone's bottom line driving the push to keep work open, a loan that some developer took out that is accruing interest. Uh, and that is putting people's lives at risk. And to continue on with local stories, here's one that I recorded as well about garbage. Last night at 12.30 a.m., that's midnight, side point, isn't it weird that it goes from 11 p.m. to 12 a.m., then to 1 a.m. at midnight? I understand that the day starts over at midnight, so we want to, like, have a.m. start, but still... It seems like the two systems are always fighting with each other. Like, um, like just get divorced already. <laughs> Let's just have two different houses. People can have two different Christmases, then why not two different time designations? Speaking of Christmas, we're not going to be talking about Christmas later on. Okay. <laughs> Last night at 12.30 a.m., I heard the garbage truck go by. It was drizzling as well. And when we talk about the coronavirus, we, and by we, I'm mostly talking about myself, talk about the underappreciated, underpaid, essential workers. And I can't think of a better example of that than people in the rain at midnight <clears throat> collecting our trash while we rest up for another day of quarantine. Not that all of us are just relaxing in quarantine. My job at a women's shelter puts me in contact with people who are much more at risk. But I get to work remotely most days, so don't think of me as some kind of superhero. But I just don't like the presumption that everyone uh, is at home quarantining. You know, it's like, what, like less than one third of Americans can work at home? So, which is a lot still. I'm, I'm glad that so many people get to. Anyway, I want to talk about garbage today. The aphorism, another man's trash is another man's treasure, is true enough, but in reality, most of us don't value garbage that much. But as a di diagnostic tool, garbage is quite illuminating. Think of archaeologists who study giant garbage heaps of discarded olive oil vases in ancient Rome. That's a thing. There's just these massive 
great things. You should check it out. Mary Beard from the BBC has an incredible, <laughs> it's just a hero. If you haven't heard Mary Beard yet, just look her up. She can tell you everything about ancient Rome, but more importantly, how that affects us today. Anyway, talking about trash. A portrait of a person through their trash is a rather honest portrait, I think. As people have been staying home, more garbage, uh, more as people have been staying home, garbage collection has been going up, except in one place. The city reports, quote, Manhattan Community District 3 on the Lower East Side saw a 5% drop in trash tonnage. Meanwhile, parts of Queens and Staten Island have seen a marked increase in household garbage collected, approaching 12% in Astoria, end quote. When they said a 5% drop in trash tonnage, since it was Earth Day last Wednesday, when, when they said tonnage, I had the, a faint glimmer of hope. And I said, wouldn't it be great if we lived in a world where at some point trash was not measured in tonnage, <laughs> but in poundage? Or what if we even got so advanced and progressive that we stopped using the imperial system? And we didn't say poundage, but we said grams or whatever. God, that would be beautiful. Back to the story. There is a clear indicator that the wealthy, I'm sorry, this is a clear indicator that the wealthy have been able to flee the city. Other analyses show that Manhattan has a much lower rate of coronavirus infections and therefore deaths, which surprises no one. The city continues in their article on garbage collection. To Robin Nagel, anthropologist in residence, at the City Department of Sanitation, the trash trends may be telling the story of a city undergoing a seismic transformation. Garbage collection itself, I'm sorry, garbage itself always, like a canary in a coal mine, is a key indicator of social change, Robert Nagel said. Manhattan is considerably wealthier than Queens, so I'm assuming more Manhattanites left the city while more Queens residents have no choice but to shelter at home. End quote by Robert Nagel. The Upper East Side has a medium household income of one hundred thirty three eight hundred fifty I'm sorry, one hundred thirty three thousand eight hundred fifty dollars in two thousand seventeen versus the sixty seven thousand six hundred fifty in Astoria, a census figure show. The seismic transformation Nagel refers to is simply that Manhattan is empty. Such an irony that being able to afford living in one of the world's most coveted real estate markets means you can leave too. Let's get back to the garbage collectors. The city reports. As of Friday morning, 414 employees had tested positive for COVID-19, though a number have already returned to work, Mager said. Mager is a Staten Island sanitation worker who spoke on conditions of anonymity. They told the city, that's the reporting, um, the newspaper the, the, that's online, that shouldering the extra load has been, quote, physically and mentally daunting, end quote. So, thank you to the garbage collectors that were outside my window last night toiling in the rain. I hope you stay healthy. 
I hope you stay dry. Let's end with a joke. Dimitri Martin, who's a comedian known for his one-liners, has a bit that goes like this. Sometimes when you make a joke, <laughs> sorry, sometimes when you make a job title sound more politically correct, it actually sounds worse, you know. Your father's not a garbage man, he's a garbage person. Well, garbage people everywhere. Of course, thank you. And to everyone else who's deemed essential, you always were. <laughs> and I don't know if me bolstering your nobility as, uh, as I don't know how to put it, the um, noble proletariat helps your paycheck at all. But of course, we're all in there with you. And many of us are with you and you're, are your coworkers. So let's stay safe and that thing that you've heard everyone say. Thank you very much. There may be times in your life where you're in need You've been listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. We're going to take a music break. This is Come Together featuring Tim Bowman. Be back in a couple minutes. I know he will. Here we go. Seems to come your way is pushing you against the wall. Yeah, I want you to know that you can make it. All you gotta do is trust him. Don't you let the devil back you up against the wall. This morning, all of our other hosts are scattered throughout. They've been contributing stories, and I'm going to read one that was contributed by Teresa, who is not able to record today. So I'm going to read this story. This is in the National News segment. National News Story, U.S. School Closures During COVID-19. The summaries are taken from Washington Post, CNN, and educationnext.org. To slow the spread of COVID-19, governors in 46 states have closed more than 91,000 U.S. public and private schools, affecting nearly, affecting more than 50 million students. Most of the closures were scheduled to last for only two to three weeks, but now governors in the United States have ordered to 
ordered or recommended that statewide school closures continue for the rest of the academic year to help reduce the spread of the novel coronavirus. All five U.S. territories, American Samoa, Guam, Northern Mariana Islands, Puerto Rico, and U.S. Virgin Islands, also are closed for the remainder of the school year. One reason for the lack of guidance on reopening schools is that medical professionals are still racing to better understand COVID-19. Children are also part of the mystery. Most influenza and pandemic planning assume that children are among the most susceptible to infection and would have higher levels of mortality. That, however, isn't the way COVID-19 is playing out. Initial data found that older adults are more susceptible. Children seem largely asymptomatic. A Chinese study of 2,000 confirmed childhood cases found that just over half had mild to no symptoms at all, which of course is very fortunate for us. Um, I'll add some commentary onto Teresa's story. I think the um, the famous influenza of 1918 and 1919, for some biological reason or whatever, was very harmful to people uh, in their 30s, which took out a lot of people uh, with young kids and whatnot, which is awful. Um, and not to value those lives over older lives or other people that are vulnerable, but uh, that is strange how um, we can't really see it coming, who gets, who is most susceptible to this, uh, this virus. All right, back to Teresa's story. As any parent or teacher knows, children are quote, super spreaders, end quote, meaning that they are excellent transmitters of viral infections since they tend to not be good social distancers. They struggle with washing their hands or giving each other space. While children may be resistant to the most severe symptoms and complications resulting from COVID-19, they are likely to be carriers, which could transmit the virus to others. The theory behind school closures is that they cut off the virus's line of transmission by forcing the social distancing of these super spreaders. A number of universities have canceled classes this spring, moving closures online, but K-12 school systems have been reluctant to close for numerous reasons. Officials worry about children who depend on schools for free or subsidized breakfast and lunch. They fear that moving classes online will be difficult, if not impossible, especially for students from low-income families who may not have access to computers and internet connections. Aggressive social distancing actions over five months can help suppress the transmission rates and flatten the curve. The challenge is that once these measures are relaxed, the virus is likely to make a rebound, leading to a second or third wave. Currently, the public health benefits of school closures and home quarantining outweigh the cost. But at what point does the equation flip? 
when do the economic, societal, and educational costs outweigh the public health benefits of these aggressive social distancing actions? With all this in mind, education leaders and policymakers will need to confirm a plan to continue the rapid response necessary to mitigate the loss of learning from this year's closures. Although the school systems have been racing to rapidly set up remote learning efforts, but superintendents and principals need to find ways of strengthening and improving these offerings for the remainder of the year. Schools will be on the front line of an adaptive policy approach next school year. Health officials rely on them as part of disease surveillance to track the spread of viruses. As a result, schools will need to develop testing and reporting regimens with their local and state health officials to serve as an early warning as early warning systems that can inform the enactment of school, social distancing measures. Thank you, Teresa, for that story, especially that last couple of paragraphs. I found them uh, that to be great information. We forget that schools are more than just schools and are connected to the very heart of our societies in many ways. And they have to do a lot more than just take care of kids uh, in terms of education. And it's helpful to rem remember that even the fact that schools will be involved in the health of society. Um, so thank you very much. We are going to come back with a world story by Emily. Um, I think we'll take a break because we only have one national story right now. So we'll take a little music break. This is a classic song by Bob Marley. This is story for objection to the rule and it's not about COVID-19. Uh, this comes from an April 23rd New York Times article by Ben Hubbard titled Germany takes rare step in putting Syrian officers on trial in torture case. Um, and it's sort of a good news story depending on how you look at it. Kind of, sort of, maybe. Um, so under the principle of universal jurisdiction, which allows national courts to conduct trials of war crimes by other, uh, from other parts of the world, 
Earlier this week, Germany began the trial of Anwar Razlan, a former colonel in a Syrian intelligence capacity uh, capacity under President Bashar al-Assad, and Ayed al-Gharib worked for Razlan on charges of crimes against humanity during Syria's civil war. The Times article explains that, quote, Mr. Razlan is the first high-ranking official to be tried on such grave charges, and the proceedings against him are the world's first to deal with state-sponsored torture in Syria, uh, end quote. And that's all from the New York Times. Uh, the trial is expected to go on for two or three years. Other universal jurisdiction cases involved crimes against humanity in Rwanda or the former Yugoslavia, but this is the first brought against a government that still remains in power. Trials like these have precedent going back to the Nuremberg trials of former Nazis by allies in the post-World War II era. Although Assad dismisses courts outside of Syria as meaningless, people are seeing this trial as an important step forward in holding powerful perpetrators of injustice and abuse accountable, as previous similar efforts related to the Syrian conflict were largely symbolic indictments or trials of low-ranking soldiers. What complicates this trial is the fact that Razlan actually defected to the opposition less than a year into the war, and even joined peace talks sponsored by the UN in 2014 as a member of the opposition. Some are worried that the prosecution of someone like Razlan might dissuade other officials from coming forward as witnesses, etc. But even so, the New York Times explains that, quote, legal advocates hope that hope the trial will provide a measure of closure for victims, pave the way for future prosecutions, and warn officials in Syria and other oppressive states that their turn in the dock could be coming, end quote. And I'll just close with a little detail that reads as very cinematic to me. Uh, it re I really kind of latched onto it. Um, so Razlan was arrested after he was recognized by a Syrian lawyer on the street in Germany where both men were refugees. Um, very interesting story that I'm sure we'll be hearing more about as it plays out. Thank you. Thank you, Emily, for that story. We're going to keep it going with another world news story. This one is a recap done by me, Matthew Schneeman. You are listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Ramadan started last Friday, April 24th, and will go for the next month. I grew up Catholic and thought my religion was very tough because every year for a month preceding Easter, we would all give up one thing for a whole month. Usually we gave up stuff like chocolate. Or if we were truly dedicated, we'd give up TV, which was unimaginable back then. Though, if, if I remember, I always, on Sundays, you would be able to watch TV. You could do... On Sundays, you could do whatever you gave up. So, like, I knew that The Simpsons, there were new Simpsons on Sundays. So, like, I always had that in my back pocket if I ever tried to give up TV. Anyway, the point is, I thought it was very difficult. And as a kid, it was kind of hard. But then I learned about Ramadan, where you fast for a month. But I don't want to go down the narrative that frames Ramadan as some crazy feat of dedication and whatnot. Focusing on the fasting as an endurance sport is a particularly poor understanding of what Ramadan is. Or at least it's a very minimalizing one. What Ramadan really is, or so I've gathered from a couple of my Muslim friends, is it's a month to reflect, eat together, and be together. Of course, the be together 
is a bit difficult this year. But before I make it sound too overly romantic or I'm like I'm being too respectful, um, my friend who's Muslim, I was just talking to him on Snapchat and he said Snapchat deleted the messages because that's what Snapchat does. Shoot, sorry. He said, <laughs> I asked him if things were different this year. And, and he said, of course. And and I said, oh, so you don't have all the gatherings. That must make it a little bit harder. And he said, eh, I actually don't really like the gatherings that much. And so he's he's kind of pumped about it. But for many people, the, not having the gatherings is, is quite difficult. Time Magazine put together a video where they did some testimonies of some families and how they're dealing with the new uh, Ramadan, Ramadan in the days of the coronavirus. Here's an excerpt from that piece. My favorite part of Ram- My favorite part of Ramadan is the sense of community. So during Ramadan, we generally like to get together with my mom and my sisters. Every night we take a walk and go to the mosque together. So it's a really nice bonding experience for us. We could put a light in here. You could, you could also put a candle. The, the big thing about Ramadan, especially with my family, was going to the mosque together. Um, it was a very communal time. It was, it was this time period where we see really everybody from the community that maybe we haven't seen for, for a few months or we don't see too often. In this socially distanced Ramadan, there's definitely a sense of isolation in the shelter in place that we're all in. And that sense of isolation is definitely causing folks to be anxious about how to really um, fulfill an otherwise looked forward to congregational um, month. In an Al Jazeera, article on the subject. Maad Fazal Musa, a research fellow at the National University of Malaysia, said, quote, There was World War II or other natural disasters, but from past literature, historical texts, and various archives, I found that Muslims still gathered during Ramadan despite the war or disasters and still observed their religious rituals together, end quote. Fasting, in the Western context, seems to be a private affair. Individuals undertake a fast for, like, self-improvement. But Ramadan, it's not so isolated, which is why this year is so hard. Again, from the Al Jazeera article, quote, Breaking of the fast is usually a communal affair, it is common for mosques to hold large iftars, especially for the poor. Month-long Ramadan bazaars and stalls selling food, drinks, and clothes, usually busy sites, are not allowed in Malaysia, Brunel, and Singapore. End quote. Here's some more from that timepiece. Let's see where we want to put them so this way we can just put them in their spots. So this year we're going to miss out on the social aspect of Ramadan as well as 
um, the spiritual one of praying in the mosque and stuff. So we're going to have to try to replace that in our daily activities at home as much as we can with the kids. My older ones, which are 12 and 10, understand. My younger ones, I've explained to them that we're not going to be going out at night to pray or they're not going to be going to their grandma's home or even um, at the end of Ramadan, we usually have Eid, which is a really big holiday for us. They usually like to go and buy toys and we usually take them away to the beach or something like that. But this year, they're not gonna get that. So that's gonna be a tough one. They kind of don't really understand why. So they're very disappointed that uh, we can't go out. Some countries are adapting. From the Al Jazeera article, quote, in the United Arab Emirates, where a nightly nationwide curfew has been in place since March 26, charities would deliver iftar meals to the poor instead of serving them in Ramadan tents or mosques. But in Saudi Arabia, the mosque of Prophet Muhammad in Medina will not provide iftar meals to needy people this year, end quote. Can you fast if you have COVID-19? If you're sick, you don't need to. Is it possible to gather but still be a safe distance apart, like what Pakistan is allowing? I don't know. I have my doubts. There are many questions, and people have to figure out how to handle Ramadan in this strange year. Here's a final excerpt from the time, the piece that Time put out. This is with a healthcare worker working in a hospital, working in a hospital that's really overrun with, with COVID right now. I think it's going to be challenging in a lot of ways. It's anytime you're, you're working like 12, 14 plus hour shifts, you want to be as fueled as possible. You want to have food and specifically water tends to be the, the biggest struggle. And then just, I think emotionally, um, the impact that this will have on kind of my, my emotional and mental psyche. I remember there was a patient who, who was Muslim um, who, who passed away um, in front of me. So I, I quickly read um, kind of the funeral dua, the supplication that we say, um, just so to make sure he at least has that. And to, to just think about going through what I'm already going through, um, but also during Ramadan while I'm fasting. I don't know if I'm going to be prepared for that. I don't know if there is a way to be prepared for that. Growing up in a culture where Muslims were a minority, I'm from Minnesota, I never understood Ramadan. I didn't really even learn about it until high school. I didn't look into it and learn about it independently until I was in my 20s. And I didn't talk to any actual Muslims, my friends or coworkers about it, until a couple years ago. Now I kind of understand it. I know that it's about community and charity and being together. It's not just like one badass fast, you know. I know that there are two Eids, not just one at the end of Ramadan. I know the phrase Ramadan Mubarak. But of course, <laughs> as I say it, I'm, I'm not actually sure if I say pronounce it correctly. Apologies if I do so. But of course, it's a worldwide religion, so there are a lot of variations and a lot for me to learn. Not that I will, you know, learn everything about different religions 
uh, celebration. But for this year's Ramadan, things will be very different. And perhaps all those celebrating it will be able to see Ramadan with fresh eyes. Maybe they, like me, will start to understand it more. And maybe this weird Ramadan will help people learn a bit more about themselves and what they were doing in spite of the cataclysmic event that we're all experiencing. Let's have another music break. This is Don't Rush featuring... Let's do another music break. This is Don't Rush by Young T and Bugsy. That song picked up by Teresa. I was glad to learn of it because it is a chill, dope song. We'll be back in a couple minutes. Don't rush, slow touch, brown on white. Like I go crunch, grab and buy. We can go bust, eye for eye. We can lose trust. White run, fizzy pop. Where you they go, go, we they go up. Catch my vibe, let me go off. Blam the trash, man, it's so tough. Alright, yo, put the belly around the body, make a catch. See no watch, now she wanna give crutch. Boy got peas, now she hopping in the pod. Man, a real life sugar gal, let my forget walk. When she want dark, told her meet me at the top. Switching lanes the other day, I seen her waiting for a bus. Maybe this a month, clear sweater. Diesel denim, buy another one, my pockets fight like heather. Neck froze like I don't know no better. Benzo truck, white seats, and they leather. Go broke, never. On my grind, she make it clap like I'm Buster Rhymes. I got the juice, the sauce, and all them things. I blamed her twice a night with all my bling. Big Benz, I Drive, I brought that thing. Any girl you want, they want my thing. Don't rush, slow touch, brown or white. I can go country, grab and buy. I can go bust, eye for eye. I can lose trust. White rum, fizzy pop. Where you they go, go, we they go up. Catch my vibe, let me go off. Climb the trash, man, it's so tough. Flood my eyes, make a whole blush. Back of the tour bus, getting cool up. D square, got on de stress. Got a hand wash, new racks with the old nikes in the shoebox. Keep my stripes, no cuss. Pull up in a new plate, and she might just. She went and now for some good news. We all need some good news right now. I am Emily Scott here again, bringing you a really exciting story about drumroll, please. Just kidding. Um, choral reproduction. But actually, it is really exciting. Uh, CNN published a story on April 23rd titled, The Florida Aquarium Just Made a Breakthrough That Will Help Save the Third Largest Coral Reef in the World. In case you didn't know, and we're planning to look that up like I just did, that is the Florida Reef. The article reports, quote, For the first time in world history, the aquarium in Tampa, Florida, has successfully reproduced rigid cactus coral in human care. The corals are just one of a variety of species rescued by uh, from Florida's waters by the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission and NOAA Fisheries after coral reefs in the state began undergoing a major disease outbreak that started in 2014. Scientists are now caring for the rescued adult coral colonies to breed and reproduce them in hope of someday restoring the reefs once the disease is gone. While reproducing these species, scientists are discovering for the first time basic information on their biology, such as when they have babies or what their larvae look like, uh, end quote. So part of the process includes, quote, advanced LED technology and computer control systems to mimic the natural environment of the coral to subtly signal the corals to reproduce, end quote. That's from CNN. 
So I never expected uh, that reading about coral larvae would ever make me as happy as it has. But hey, there's a first time for everything. Am I right? Uh, Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Yeah, that's my little story on coral. Thank you, Emily, for that little story on coral. We're going to close with a feature from the podcast At Night I Fly. This is a show that I do with Spoon Jackson, an incarcerated poet out in California. It is a show I'm very proud of. Um, We don't have enough time for the full show, so we're going to fade out in the end. Um, But it's an eight-part series. I implore you to check it out because I think it's uh, great and worthwhile to listen to. We'll be back next week with another show. And until then, I don't know. We've never had a tagline, so why start now? But hope everyone is well. Talk to you next week. Spoon Jackson has been in prison for 42 years. In that time, he's become a poet and a journalist. This show is about his poetry. Now, I don't like poetry, but after getting to know Spoon, I started to. So this show recreates that process, but for you. Spoon reads a poem, maybe you'll like it. Then we put it in some context, I do a feature on it, and at the end, we reread the poem. And this time... Hopefully, goddammit, you do like it. This episode is about family. In it, I interview Spoon's brother, Abe Lincoln Jackson. Was that normal? Or how did you normally kill the pig? They'll shoot him in the the forehead and the head, I think. And my parents. No, I mean, you don't, you try not to even think about what, what you would do in that situation. Enjoy. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. So you had 14 brothers and then nine step-siblings? Yeah, something like that. I had 14 uh, full brothers and then a few half-brothers and sisters. That is an incredible number. I mean... Actually, 15. One of us died in birth. Oh, okay. Yeah. There was a 15 of us, all boys. And you're a younger, you're one of the youngest, right? I was second to the youngest. Yeah, yeah. you and I have that in common. We're both uh, little brothers. And uh, I'm going to have to call you back later. Okay, I heard that announcement. Are they having a... Um... Yeah. Something came up. All right, you going to be there all day or what time? It might be tomorrow then if I can't get you. At night, I fly. Today I die. I died yesterday and tomorrow. And at night, I fly. Thank you for using Global Tail Link. Hey man, look like you was waiting for the call. <laughs> yeah. What what yeah. happened? So, uh, nothing. Just had uh, they put went on first watch status. Yeah. What what does that mean? First, first watch, watch status mean mean that they did not have enough staff to run the prison. Oh, okay. So it, it, it's not the yeah. same thing as a lockdown. It was just a. No, they don't do the big. You can't do no lockdown here because it's a dorm. If one race get into it with another race, what the hell can they do? You can't lock nobody fucking down. They pass laws where you can't keep people on lockdown, them long ass, 
nine month lockdowns. I was on some of them up there, new folks. That shit is crazy. Y- you were involved in a nine month lockdown? Uh, 12, uh, a year lockdown for you. Yeah. So, what does that mean? Just confined yeah. to your cell? Yeah, come out for showers, handcuffed to go to the showers and handcuffed and go, go to the medical. Other than that, you're in the cell with no. Shit. Let's do a little intro uh, for this this episode. So, welcome to At Night I Fly. I'm Matthew Schneeman. We're talking about family with our wonderful host and poet leader, Spoon Jackson. How's it going, Spoon? Uh, it's going fine, and family is a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing. One of my brothers, Rob, the one that holding up the hall, he was so mad he wanted to get a shotgun and come up to the sheriff's department and get me out of jail yeah did, did everyone have to because stop we didn't know him? how to communicate yeah we didn't know how to communicate as boys because dad my dad probably didn't communicate that well either he rarely talked but when when they got money together to get me an attorney and you know my sister-in-law was always there in the in the courtroom and all that old stuff and when i got found guilty you could hear him crying and hollering and my dad had his longer sentence to me when I was sitting in the county jail. Said nothing a whole, a whole lifetime to each other. Until I came to prison, he said, boy, you better pray. And that was about it. Do you have a, a copy of Longer Ago with you? Uh, yeah. Great. Let's do Fat King. Fat King? <laughs> Okay, this is called Fat King. The little piglet with his hard brush head. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. The little piglet with his hard brush hair is so frisky cute when young, so royal and regal like a fat king when old. How he got out of his pen, I do not know. There must be a hole in the fence. He must have strayed hungry into the spring. He must have strayed hungry into the dawn. He wanted to know what was behind the pigeon coop. He wanted to know what was behind the big evergreen bush. He wanted to know what was outside his pent-up world. Too young to know better. He wanted too soon to be on his own. I must have been too late to feed his mom. She must have been too late with milk. The little piglet, how he got away from the dog that mauled him and tore his way home, I do not know. He lies there in his own pasture of blood, and the flies with green bellies have laid their legacy in his wounds. I do not know how his curiosity didn't get him killed. I'm happy he's alive. <laughs> My shoulder's hurting me. I'm sorry to hear that. No, I'm sorry. I'm not going to try to grab a basketball. We have 60 seconds remaining. Was that an actual uh, a pig that you remember? I'm be eating. Yeah, no, I remember eating pork chops. The pig in the poem was that a real pig or just? Yeah, yeah, that was a real pig. But you know, he he grew up to be a run after that. He didn't get big. He had maggots. Yeah, yeah, he got bigger, but he had maggots that was eating him up. And I happened to look between his fur 
when I got him back in the pen, and that's when I seen the maggots eating him up. So they, they would have kept eating him. They would have ate right through his heart. So oh my God. Yeah. Up, I went and got some of that uh, stuff from the feed store, some purple stuff medicine you put inside the womb, and all the maggots came out. Because maggots ain't nothing but fly larvae. And it's them green flies uh, that lays that larvae, and you lays the little worms, and you the maggots in you. Anytime you got a cut or something like that, and you get a green fly on it, you, you better watch it. That's what they do. They lay the eggs on the come maggots. Oh. But they was eating that little... This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. They was eating with a lot, little pig up the line. You know, he was cool because he was, ended up trying to breed with the, the sows and all of those stuff. So he grew up and lived a good pig's life, I think. Mm. Could you, like, tell me one memory or, like, one kind of image from childhood about your family? When we slaughtered a hog, how all my brothers and stuff came around and neighbors and we'd all be around there and we all gathered around and... Oh, this is Matthew. Yes, this is um, Abraham Jackson. Yeah, bacon, sausage, you eat. Man, I'm, I, shit, I tear all that up. <laughs> I was just talking to your brother. He called me back. Abe. Yes, Abe. How, how are you doing? Or do you go by Abraham? Yeah, I told him. Yeah, he's supposed to, yeah. I yeah. told him who you were again. Either way, it's okay. Did what we did with the hog and cut it up and meat. How, how does that work? Well, you, you, you get in the pen and you usually use a gun or you use a hammer. They'll shoot him in the, in the forehead, in the head, I think. Oh, they were usually they shoot him in the head, but I think he hit him in the head with the hammer. That's not. But Rob was, Rob was pretty big. So he, he was muscular and stuff. So I guess the pig said, well, I can't have this. <laughs> That's what Rob then used to do. And, you know, you do it quickly. Try not to cause it much pain. Now, I know it's cruel things. And, and so you do that and then you hang him. Then you uh, got to cut his throat and let the blood come out, and you have a big barrel of water boiling before that. Take him over to the table with the hot scalding water and the big drum, and they start dipping the pig in the the hot scalding water, and then they have knives. Two or three brothers have knives, and they start scrape, scraping the hair off. Oh, so the water is to soften the hair. Yeah, so then they scrape it off, kind of like shaving. You know, sometimes people do that when they shave. Scrape the hair and stuff off. And you gotta have music though. You have music and beer, doing what they do, drinking and talking, and you know, dogs are around, and all the brothers that was in Barstow are around. But family is, uh, you'll find out, especially when you get a tragedy in your life or something like that, how your family will rally around you like a herd of elephants. When you see an elephant fall, from the documentaries I've seen, a family of elephants could stay around there until a fallen member become bones. Abe, I thought he hated me the most, and I found out he was the most uh, loyal and loving brother and stayed in contact with me all the time I've been in prison. Well, I, I, try, to, I try to look out for my younger brothers and do what I can to try to help them out, and, but I never really thought I put so much effort out trying to communicate to him that I didn't like it. So I try to, you know, look out for it. Uh, I bottle fed him, you know, when he was big. <laughs> <laughs>
I just had to hear those stories. Uh, a, probably tell you more about them, probably about them sort. I, interviewed- I stole his boot though one time and got bit by a dog as I tried to go to the store because the boots were too big. He was sitting on the port la- porch laughing. Who, Abe? So that's what I get, yeah, he said, that's what I get for stealing his boots. <laughs> the damn thing bit me right in the ass, too. I don't, I don't, I don't know if I'd have laughed at it or something like that happened, but I could have been. I don't know. I don't, I don't recall that. He did remember. He told me about it one day, Ryan. <laughs> he might not remember now. Yeah. He told me about it years and years ago. Yeah, he might, I remember though. I didn't want to get bit in the ass. I, I interviewed my parents because we had, they had five kids and a lot of people thought that was like a lot of kids. And so I thought it'd be fun to ask them about if they would have had um, 14 boys instead. Yeah, that's 15 boys. We actually had 15. 15. Boys. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. One, 14 surviving. Died, died at birth. One died at birth right after birth. My mom got, at, at one point someone reported her house because they thought we were uh, an unlicensed daycare center. And my mom got, uh, oh. somebody sent us a ticket. Oh, because you had, what, five kids? That was it? And they thought that was unlicensed daycare? Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. So this is a letter from the Community Human Services Department in the city of St. Paul, October 1st, 1985. It has come to our attention that you have been operating an unlicensed daycare home at the above address. So um, I called the city, the Department of Human Services, and said, they're really all my own kids. And... Um, so at any rate, and they but, didn't believe it. Uh, yeah, I felt that I was not believed, and was treated with very curtly on the phone. We we used to make phone calls back then. <laughs> so I wrote the local newspaper columnist, and he wrote an article in the paper. Schneeman is a mother. <laughs> she even likes it. As many mothers like Schneeman, there might be, Schneeman is beginning to feel as though society is biased, biased against them. In fact, Schneeman has proof of sorts. The, the article day, goes on, or the opinion piece goes on, and it's interesting to me and my family, but it's not universal. What is universal is wondering how you would feel and how difficult it would be if your friend or family member was in jail or prison or are in prison, because there are millions of people in prison, which is a lot of family. What would you have done if one of us got uh, put in prison? Oh, that would be a heartbreak, really, really hard. I'm sure it's a ton ton of worry for the parents, you know, and you know life is very difficult inside prison, and you can't just go see the person whenever you want and have time with them. And it's, it's, it's not, well, it, it could have happened. I'm sure, like, all of us at some point had, like, marijuana on us or bought it or something illegal. Right, and it was pretty severe. Yeah, I could have gotten put away for, like, drunk driving and, like, hitting someone. But, Matthew, you got to look at these pictures. Look at you. you were That's on, me? You were dancing. There is no question that there's a lot of luck involved. Where you live, you know, suburban Minnesota. I think the police, you know, are um, 
might, might have given you a break at least on one occasion that I know. Oh, yeah, when I was Look at you. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but the officer, instead of dragging you in, he, didn't he let you, go, let you go home? Look at you. Look at your That's eyes. me. Look at your eyes. Aren't you beautiful? No, I mean, you don't, you try not to even think about what, what you would do in that situation. Um, but, you know, we've, we've learned that you just have to be adaptive and um, just keep your cool as change occurs. Yeah, not a lot has changed. Oh, oh it's That's your birthday. Oh, it's your birthday. Yeah. Guess <laughs> mm. you were adorable. Just adorable. Just the cutest. Normally, we reread the poem from the beginning of the episode. But for this one, even though it's the first episode, we're going to break with convention immediately. Spoon had another poem about family that was just great. So I thought, let's feature that one. Can I ask you to read a poem uh, that is about your mom? Or has your mom in it? Yeah, you got a lot of episodes. You're going to have a lot of work to do. Well, this is just for the same one. It's a, I just think it's it's a good poem, and it we've been talking which a lot one? about boys and your dad. Um, yeah, which poem? Backstop on page eighty-one. Yeah, yeah. Backstop for my mom, Hortense Whitney Jackson. Backstop. The poem is barking like a dog outside the window on the backstop of life. My mom, who brought me into this world, passed on years ago. But on quiet nights and deep dreams, we meet. She cooks my favorite foods. Sometimes a deer comes for dinner. And he don't come to be eaten. He comes to sit at the table with us, the deer. I know, because you told me this a long time ago. That's, a, that's from a dream, isn't it? Dream. One of the most famous dreams to me is when my mom, you know, she'd been passed since 87. And sometimes I would dream about her and we sitting down there in a bar store in this trailer. And she would make dinner and we'd be eating and a deer is sitting at the table eating with us. <laughs> I like this. And I said, man, that's a cool dream. I never forgot that dream. That's a cool dream. And I, I know it was my mom was there and the deer was there and I was there. I don't know about anybody else who was eating something good. Maybe, maybe I don't know, maybe it was my meatloaf that my mom, I had her make instead of cake on my birthday. Oh, that's cute. You, you asked for meatloaf instead of cake? Yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> we have to be creative in some of our, uh, we end up being creative. We have to eat the pig feet and pig ears and hog head cheese and Thanks for listening. That was an excerpt from At Night I Fly, a podcast I do with incarcerated poet Spoon Jackson. Please check it out. I think it's a great show. You've been listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. We will be back next week. Until then, have a wonderful time.